0: Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Job. I want to begin what I anticipate will be a a new series, and I'm calling this the Servant Series. And the first servant of God that we want to look at is going to be in the book of Job. And we're going to be spending all of our time this morning, basically, in the book of Job, kind of flipping back and forth. If you get a little lost in that, I'll certainly be glad to give you a scripture list of of how I have looked through this. Whenever I felt like the Lord laid it on my heart to look at some servants in the Bible with, with the goal of learning from these servants, if they were servants in the scripture and they had certain characteristics, I believe it would be beneficial for us to learn from those characteristics. And when I feel like the Lord laid that on my heart, I began to just look up the word "servant," and it's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. I was like, this this could go on for the rest of my life if I approach the series in this way. So then I said, okay, well, I'll back up and I'll think about how to narrow it down. And so the way that I narrowed it down is I looked up the phrase "my servant" in the Scripture. Specifically focusing on where the Lord refers to individuals in in that phrase, my servant. And so then I narrowed it down just a little bit further because sometimes when he said my servant, it wasn't referring to a particular person. Then I narrowed it down just a little bit further to refer to specific people where the Lord said, my servant, David, my servant, Job, my servant, Moses. So that's what I intend to look at. And we're going to take up the first of those. And I believe it's in a chronological uh, pattern here. We're going to look at Job. Job, the first chapter. And I won't name off all the ones that we're anticipate looking at. But Job is the first one from a chronological standpoint. Now, the book of Job, if you think about the days of the flood, just to put it in perspective. I believe the historical evidence shows that Job was written sometime, and it occurred sometime from the end of the flood, when Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and Noah, and his and all of their wives, they rep- began to repopulate the earth after the Tower of Babel, which occurs over the book of Genesis. I believe that Job existed sometime after the flood and before Moses. Now, that's a, about a thousand-year time frame. And if you want to narrow it down even more, I really believe the evidence shows that Job existed shortly before Abraham came on the scene. Now, I have my reasons why I think that, and I'll be happy to share those with you at some point privately, but that's not the purpose of my subject this morning. In the book of Job, we find it's very significant that the Lord refers to Job as my servant. Now, I want you to think about that. The word servant as defined, the, the word that God uses in heaven for servant we have it as the Hebrew word, and it means bondman, or slave, or worshiper. So literally, the Lord refers to someone on the earth as his bondman. And I don't want you to think about it in terms of a slave as being shackled, because that would, that would not be, that's what Satan uh, saw Job as, was just a shackled slave who was, who was only loving the Lord because the Lord was blessing him. But I think you'll see through what we look at this morning that Job's service to God surpassed his circumstances, okay? So as we consider my servant Job as the Lord referred to him, let's read. I want to get the context by reading verse 6. And we're going to jump around a little bit, but I want you to see the Lord referring to Job as my servant. In Job 1 and 6 it says there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. I'll just tell you this is not something going on in heaven. This is most likely a worship service taking place on the earth. But whatever it is, it's not going on in heaven because Satan has been cast out of heaven uh, previous to this, long time previous to this. And the Lord says to Satan, whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord arrogantly, He says, I'm going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. I go anywhere I want to go. I do anything I please. And the Lord calls him into check and says unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? You see that right there? Now I want you to think about that. Here is God in heaven looking down upon the earth and he's referring to an individual as my servant. Isn't that precious? Now somebody that goes around and says... Well, you know, I'm I'm living such a great life and I'm doing so well in my discipleship that I really believe the Lord's probably referring to me as his servant in heaven. (laughs) I can assure you that that person is not being referred to in heaven as the servant of God. You see, that's something that we can look at this from an otherworldly perspective because we have the scripture revealed here. But that's not something that a disciple who is a servant of God goes around thinking about. The disciple, as you will see in the mindset of Job, is too busy thinking about other things. Okay, So we see Job is referred to by God in heaven as his servant. Now what I want to do, and I'm trying to, I want to make this real for you. I want to make it touchable. I do think of this as like a deposition. I hope everybody knows what a deposition is. That's what testimony is given and a court reporter takes it down. And oftentimes in preparation for trials, we'll go back and we'll read through depositions because that's what they're for, is to help us know what somebody's going to say in trial. So from a legal standpoint, the book of Job after chapter 3 is basically like a deposition because it records the words and the questioning of Job's friends, and then it records Job's response. Very often... Whenever I'm looking over depositions, I don't go through the whole thing. I just go to specific parts that I remember. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. I'm going to be lifting out certain things that Job says in this deposition that took place between his three friends, him and the Lord. And a fourth friend that comes along. But we're not going to get bogged down at what question was going on and what the response is. I just want you to see some things that Job says. So you can know what the servant of God was thinking, what his mind was. And also remember this, this is in the worst situation, the worst time of Job's life. You know, you hear me say often, one of my favorite phrases is, the heat shows the heart. But this is the greatest heat. This is the greatest fire, the greatest trial that Job has ever been through. And so you're getting his heart. He's telling you his heart. You don't have to worry about what this man believed because he's spilling his heart in this Deposition. if you'll look at it with me here this morning. So the first thing we want to consider about Job, God says he's my servant. Why? What is it about Job? What is it about the way Job lived and what he said, what he believed, and how he acted? What is it about Job that results in God saying he's my servant? And if, listen, if you're not interested in that, then you must not be interested in serving God. <laughs> Because I'm very interested in what the Lord says about his servant. I mean, what did they do? How did they act? What did they think? How, what was on their heart, on their mind? So here we go. And we're going to be flipping through Job several times at several different spots. And as I said, I hope I don't lose you in the spots. I'll be happy to give you the scriptures. Okay, first of all, we want to consider the servant Job's view of God. I think that's important, don't you? If God was saying he's my servant... We want to consider his view of God, right? So let's look at Job chapter 9 in the account of Job responding to these miserable comforters that came and accused him. And by the way, that's, that's an interesting side note, isn't it? If you want to be a miserable comforter to someone when they're going through hard times, come and point the finger at them. Because that's what these men did. They don't need you to point the finger at them. Now, if they ask and they say, what did I do wrong? How did I mess up? That may be a time for the spiritual man or woman to say, have you considered this? Have you considered that? But as Galatians says, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. (laughs) You see, these men just come and start pointing the finger at him and make his situation worse than it was. Let's look at Job 9 and look at verse 4. And this is Job sharing his heart about what he believes in God. And speaking of God, he says, God, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened Himself against Him and hath prospered? Which removeth the mountains, and they know not. Which overturneth them in His anger. Which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble. Which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars. Which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. This man's a genius, isn't he? (laughs) Which doeth great things past finding out, yea, in wonders without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. What do you think he believes about the omniscience and omnipresence of God? He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. Behold, he taketh away. Who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, what doest thou? Sounds very similar to what Isaiah says years and years later, doesn't it? And I want you to notice how similar some of the things that Job says to some of the scriptures that we're familiar with. If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom though I were righteous, yet would I not answer. But I would make supplication to my judge. You see, Job in these few words here, and we're just pulling out snippets from his testimony. Job believes in a sovereign God who does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases. Now look on over in the same chapter at verse 32. What does Job believe about the, the nature of God? He says, for he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. There's a sermon that I preached years ago called... The As a matter of fact, Brother uh, Matthew Arnold uh, wrote a song about a hymn about that called Our Daysman, which is in our little hymnal, hope and Lord willing it'll be in the next um, centennial edition of the old school hymnal. But the daysman is just an Old Testament way of referring to a mediator. That's what they referred to it as in the Old Testament. It was somebody who could settle your case in a day. (laughs) A daysman. Now when I think about that in terms of Uh, I've got cases pending in court right now that have been there for four or five years. It makes me think, I wish I had a daysman that would settle some of those cases in one day. (laughs) Well, I tell you, Job was referring to the fact that there's no man that can settle the case of, of a man in a day when it comes to his sins. But there's one who would take on flesh. God would take on flesh and become a man and be our daysman. You see, that's what Job viewed God as. You see? So look at chapter 12, and I tried to do these chronologically so they'd be easy to flip through. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. This is very interesting what Job says here about God. In verse 10 of chapter 12, he says, "...in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind." Now today, if Job got on CNN or Fox or one of the national networks and said... I believe that the soul of every living thing is in the hand of the Almighty God, and the breath of all mankind comes from the Almighty. What do you think they would say about him? Are you kidding me? They'd say he was a fool, first of all. They'd say he was non scientific, next. And they'd just say he's a hypocrite and, you know, against everybody, uh, against the course of nature. You see, Job had the same beliefs as. The patriarchs had he had the same beliefs as uh, you do today and this was way back before the covenant that was made between God and Abraham now let's let's press on for the sake of time Job also believed in the resurrection Job the 14th chapter I want you to see this with me in verse 14 Four, Job 14 and 14 he says if a man die shall he live again how many times have you heard that at a funeral? That's a popular, popular verse at a funeral. I've used it many times myself. After the flood, before Abraham, 1,500 years or seventeen or 1,800 years, maybe 2,000 years before Christ comes, Job says, if a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. He's saying, I believe in the resurrection. And if that's not clear enough, look a couple pages over to chapter 19. No, we're doing a lot of flipping, but I want you to see the testimony of Job, the servant of God. Job chapter 19, we we'll begin in verse 23. This is other verses of Scripture that are used often at funerals. Job says, Oh, that my words were written... Oh, that they were printed in a book, and they are, by the way, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Did Job believe in the resurrection? Absolutely he did. Now, turn over to chapter 23. I want you to see how Job, the servant of God, felt about the Word of God. And by the way, at this time that this was written, that this would have been probably one of the first writings that was preserved. We believe this is the oldest book of the, of the Bible. We're not exactly sure who wrote it. It's possible, some believe, that Moses may have written it, along with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But whether it, whether it was written by Moses or before, this is the oldest record, of, of one written in the scripture. It doesn't mean that Job was the oldest one. At, you know, we, we go all the way back to Adam. Moses wrote those books, but Moses came after Job. So Job is the oldest, believed to be the oldest book of the Bible. And the reason I'm belaboring that is because there was no written down word, hardly at all at this time, until the days of the book of Job. And so in Job 23, we ask Job, how, did you, how do you feel about the word of God? And look at verse 8. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. Sounds very similar to what we just read, doesn't it? But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job believed that it was more important to follow God than to eat. Are y'all with me? The servant of God who the Lord looked upon and said, behold my servant. This servant of God believed that it was more important to follow the Word of God than to nourish himself with food. That sounds very, very similar to what it says in the book of Leviticus. That man shall not live by bread alone, doesn't it? It sounds very similar to the rebuke that Jesus Christ gave in the temptation in the wilderness when Satan said, you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Do you believe that, Jesus, do you believe that Job was in line with the teachings of Jesus? So if the Word said it, you know it, it would be like this. If the Word said don't eat this meal before you do this, <laughs> then Job was going to do whatever was commanded before he ate. I mean, it could be that simple. It could be even more complex than that, but it was more important for Job to follow the words of God than it was to even eat. Okay. Now that Listen, that doesn't mean that he uh, malnourished himself or anything like that, but if it came down to serving God and going, well, I need to nourish myself, well, he would go serve God. You see? Out of his own mouth, the servant of God says this. Now, what is Job's we're going to go back a little bit now to Job fourteen? We see Job's opinion, Job's belief of God, and the word of God, and the resurrection, and the sovereignty of God. What about Job's opinion of man and of sin? Let's look back at Job fourteen. In verse 1, it says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. That's a very famous verse right there that's often quoted. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Watch verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. One of the themes that goes through the book of Job is his friends are consistently saying to him, You know, that. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? You can't get man can't be clean because man comes from man. He it's it's a reference to sin. Cleanness and uncleanness is a reference to sin. And Job says, who can bring a sinless man out of a sinful man? You can't do it. Who can get a clean thing out of an unclean thing? You know, ladies, why do you wash your clothes? You put them in there to put them in an environment where they can be cleaned. You don't, you know, you don't get your basket of laundry and go out to the dirt pile and rub your white clothes or your white shirts or even your dark clothes or your your dark shirts in the dirt because you'll never have a clean shirt come out of that dirt pile right no you put them in the laundry and they're scrubbed with soap and they come out clean they have to have something act on them to make them clean y'all with me and so Job says you cannot get a clean thing from an unclean thing. So his opinion on sin is man is sinful. <laughs> see, man needs to be cleansed and it's got to be an outside agent that acts on man. Look at a verse... Uh, this, this, is, this is way over in, in the book of Job, but Job chapter 31. I, I just we, We've got to see this in Job 31. So you can know... How Job Believed About Sin and About Man. It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Job because it tells you just what Job did know, the history that Job knew. And I get it. There's people who say, well, I'm not interested in history. Well, if we're not interested in, in at least some touch of history or some understanding of history, we're destined for history to repeat itself. See? That's why a lot of the things that you see going on in politics today is so important, not just to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. The things that relate to such as communism and socialism and things like that, those things have all been tried before, and they fail miserably, and they destroy people. If we don't have some kind of eye to history, we are destined to repeat the mistakes of history. Look at what Job knew about history in Job 31 and verse 33. Job says, If I covered my transgressions as Adam... By hiding mine iniquity in my bosom. Now wait a minute. This was about 2,000 years from the time of Adam. And he knew Adam by name. It did not mean that he knew him in person. But obviously somebody had done their job growing up of teaching Job about the sin of Adam. (laughs) This was not far from the flood, you remember. And the flood uh, goes all the way back to the days of Adam, you remember, because Adam sinned. And that's when things started getting bad. And then God wipes out the world with judgment in the days of the flood and only Noah and his family survived. And Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives had children, and many, many children, and they began to pass down the truth. And this is one of the truths that they passed down. You see, Job, like you, I trust, understand completely that Adam sinned and when Adam sinned, it brought destruction and death upon the world, upon mankind. And notice he also knows that Adam covered his transgression. How did Adam cover it? Look at the language. By hiding mine iniquity in my bosom. You see, Adam knew that he had sinned in his heart, but Adam would not confess his sin. You remember, it, you, know, you don't really have an account of Adam confessing. He says, the woman that you gave me caused me to eat. You really don't have an account there in the garden when God confronts them of Adam confessing. He was hiding his sin in his bosom. Oh, child of grace, don't hide your sin in your bosom. If you want to be a servant of God, if you want the Lord to look upon you and smile, we don't need to hide sin down in our heart. We need to confess that sin. And it doesn't mean that you go around confessing to everybody that what you've done. That's not appropriate because it says the things that are done in darkness, the things that are done in sin, uh, those, things should, uh, those things should not be spoken of. Confess your sin to your God. You see? And if you've, if you've injured or offended your brother or your sister, confess your sin to them. But even David said when he'd sinned, he said, when he'd committed that terrible sin with Bathsheba and and having her husband murdered, he said, against thee, against God, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And yet he defended a lot of people with his actions, you see. So Job believed in the sin of Adam. Now let's look back on what Job thinks about his own sin. Because that's a big deal right there, isn't it? Because we can say all day long and we can crow all day long, oh, look at the sin of mankind, Oh, that's terrible. Look how terrible man is. and Look how terrible things are in politics and how terrible things are in the culture and how terrible things are with all the horrible influences that are out there from music to the things of the culture. Well, what about me? I'm going to tell you, you can't be an effective servant of God until you have an eye to your own sin. Look at the 10th chapter of Job. Job 10, and let's begin reading. In verse 8, Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. Remember, I beseech thee, that thou hast made me as the clay. Then wilt thou bring me into dust again? Hast thou not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? By the way, this is some of the most poetic language. Did you know this, the book of Job, is listed as a classic? It is listed as a classic in literature because of the poetic language of the book of Job. Hast thou not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh and hast fenced me with bones and sinews? I wonder what Job's opinion on the murder of the unborn would be. Job was definitely pro-life. There's no doubt about that. He speaks of infants that never saw light. Thou hast granted me life and favor and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. And these things hast thou hid in thine heart and I know that this is with thee if I sin... Then thou markest me, and thou wilt not acquit me from mine iniquity. Watch him now. If I be wicked, woe unto me. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. Does anybody want to take a guess at what that reminds you of? It reminds me of the publican in Luke, the 18th chapter. Job says, if I be wicked, woe unto me. I need to repent. And he says, if I be righteous, I will not lift up my head. That's like the publican that said I will not, he would not so much as lift up his head unto God, but he smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. <laughs> you see that? Look at chapter 13, just a page over, as we see what Job thinks about his own sin. Job 13 and verse 15. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Can we say that, brothers and sisters? Can we say God is just if he took our breath away? I hope we can say that because he's the giver of breath. He can also take away our breath. He says, But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. See, Job says, The only hope I've got is the Lord. The only deliverer I've got is the Lord. Do you think Job was dependent on his good works to deliver him? I don't think so. Look at verse chapter 13, verse 23. How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Did Job think that he was a sinner? Yes, he did. Wherefore, hidest thou thy face and holdest me for thine enemy? Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro, and wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? For thou writest bitter things against me and makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. You hear that? Job saw himself as a sinner all throughout his life. In his youth, in his middle ages, in his later years, Now, we see Job's view of God. We see Job's view of man. We see Job's view of sin. And we see a view of his own sin. Now, we also can see views that Job had about other things. We're kind of running out of time, so I'm not going to belabor these. But you can look in chapter 28 and see what Job thought about riches. And this was the richest man in the world at the time. In chapter 31, verses 24 and 25, he says, If I have made gold my hope. Then let my arm fall off from me. <laughs> you see, Job was one of the richest men that lived at the time, and yet he did not put his hope and his confidence in his riches. You can also read about Job's life from when he was younger, up uh, like from a child all the way up to an adult. You can read him confessing out of his own mouth how his own parents. It says in Job chapter 31, it says that, he was brought up with the widow and with the fatherless. They were at his table. There was a constant hospitality going on in the life of Job. And the hospitality was not just for those that would benefit them. And it wasn't just a pick and a choose. I'll choose to be hospitable to those that benefit me. No, it was to the widow and to the orphan. He said, I was brought up with him. Did not he that make me in the womb make him also? You see, Job had an equality in his mind. That I'm I'm no different than them. I've just been blessed to have a a, a mom and a dad. You know, here's the orphan. He doesn't have uh, the dad or maybe the mom passed away. Whatever the situation. He was brought up with those. And he also says in Job 29, Oh, that I would be as I was in the days of my younger years when the secret of God was upon my tabernacle and my children were around me. Remember, he had 10 children. And he thinks back on the days of when his children were around his table. And you can read in chapter 29 about the things that he did and the people that he interacted with. So the days in the life of Job, he confesses and he testifies about his belief in God, his belief in man, his belief in sin, his his own experience in life. If you want to know something about why God was referring to this man as his servant, it's all right there. So let's go back to Job, the first chapter in our remaining time. And let's consider a few days in the life of the servant of God, Job. Charles Spurgeon wrote and said, and he actually also quoted from John Bunyan, he says, a man may be a good man and a rich man, but it is not usually the case. I am afraid that what Mr. Bunyan says is all too true. And this is a quote from John Bunyan. Gold and the gospel seldom do agree. Religion always sides with poverty. Y'all realize how blessed we are? There, there's nobody under the sound of my voice that has faced Poverty. Praise God. You realize how blessed and prosperous we are? And do you also realize that our prosperity is our persecutor? It persecutes us and draws our minds and our hearts away from God. If we don't like what we get, you know, we we package it up and we send it back. (laughs) If we don't like what comes out or what, what, what comes out with our food, we ask them to cook it a little more or bring me something different. You understand, we don't have a clue about what poverty is. And I'm just going to tell you, the people of God through the centuries have been characterized more often than not by poverty, by extreme oppression and persecution. And yet in that, through those times, God's kingdom still goes on. Isn't that amazing? And then you have men like Job who were able to maintain their focus on God even though they had incredible riches. Let's read verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, feared God, eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. I've tried to kind of do a little math computation about how much land it would take to feed 7,000 sheep. Now, I figured how much it would take to feed 7,000 cattle. It would take a lot more than sheep because sheep are smaller and they don't require as much food. But it would take a minimum, a minimum, I think, of 7,500 to 10,000 acres to really effectively keep such animals. And also, if you figure, he's also plowing and planting. So Job easily had 20,000 plus acres at his disposal to handle all of this great massive fortune that he had amassed. Now maybe he got some from his parents, maybe they gave him a good start, but regardless, he has all he is a rich man. You know, I'm not saying that Bill Gates doesn't have land and some of these rich moguls out there today don't have land and such. But often you find these people that are rich today, they may just have a blip on a computer screen. They might have the land to back it up. But a rich man in these days did not just have a blip of of an amount on a computer screen or or investments in the stock market that could crash at any time. They had the substance. They had the gold, the silver. They had the land. They had the the cattle. Job had 7,000 sheep. You know, the most we ever had, I think, on the cool Farm, cows would have been about 350 between 350 and 400 and that was a handful of cows i mean it was a lot i dad always said you know 10 cows or 100 cows is about the same amount of trouble <laughs> you know so you can imagine seven thousand sheep you know Job's not out there tending these things himself every day you understand he's got a staff he's got employees he's got servants he is he is tremendous in his wealth tremendous and yet i want you to see what he's doing it says that he had ten children, seven sons, three daughters. Not only is he tremendous in his wealth, but he's also wealthy from the standpoint of having a lot of children. And they are living nearby. And it says in verse 4, I think I, this is just a side note, but it is interesting to me that if you figure he had a, a child every year or year and a half or so, that there was probably a at least a 12 or 13 year spread between these children. So, if the oldest child was 30, you know, the youngest one had to be in the age, a range of 18, 17. And it's interesting to me that it doesn't mention any wives, and it doesn't mention any, any grandchildren. Now, we see, you'll see in the last book of Job, you'll find that he eventually, he does have grandchildren. But there's no mention of wives or grandchildren. I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means his children were maybe too selfish, you know, to go out and find someone I don't know. I'd have nothing but speculation to offer about that. But it is interesting to note that if the oldest one was 32, the youngest one was was around 20, and it says that they were feasting in their houses every one his day. Now, interesting also, there's no speculation about what feasting means. The basic root word of feast means to give somebody a drink. (laughs) The basic root word means to irrigate. And he's not talking about water. They're talking about having some kind of party. All right? Now, it does not mean that they were having some kind of party, you know, where everybody is acting like a bunch of heathens. It doesn't mean that. It does sound like that they're celebrating their birthdays, okay, and they're having a party. And so the sons invite whoever's having, they've got their own houses, and they invite their sisters to come, and they have a feast, probably since they're seven sons, you know, maybe you know, one day each of the week. And so maybe they're having just a week-long feast here. And it's interesting also that Job does not go. It does not mean that he wasn't invited. But for whatever reason, Job chose to stay at home. I think that's also interesting commentary on how Job parented. You know, he wasn't all up in his children's business. If you want to find a way to destroy your children, just be all up in their business and manipulate and, you know, try to make, you know, make this happen. It doesn't mean that mom's sitting there starting to sweat when me saying that because she definitely had a hand behind the scene of when Chris and Sherry, you know, had their first date. But I don't think he found that out for like seven years. She was very wise to keep that quiet because who knows how that would have jeopardized things if they'd have found that out real quick. So it's not saying that you can't do some work behind the scenes and pray and do all these. But Job was not manipulating and he was not all up in their business. He just kind of stayed at home when they were having their parties. And it says it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them. Notice it says in verse 4 that the brothers sent and called for their three sisters. And after they finished their feasting, after their partying was, was over, Job sent and he set up a time of worship for them. I think it implies here that he called for them to come to his house. So you guys have had your fun and you've done your thing and I've let you do your thing and I've not interrupted you or or influenced you in any way. He says, now I've set up a day of worship. I want you to come to my house and let's worship. He sent and he sanctified them. And he rose up early in the morning. And it wasn't one of those lay around till 11 o'clock kind of things. No, he said, I want us to get up early and I want us to observe worship to our God early in the morning. And it says that he offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Now, why did he do this? You don't have to wonder why. Because Job had an understanding of his children's strengths and weaknesses. And I've said this to you before. I believe that it's a whole lot better for us as parents and a parent to understand the weaknesses of their children than it is to understand their strengths. Now, if all we ever harp on is your weakness, your weakness, your weakness... That's that's negative. That's not good. I've heard some say that it's, if you say one thing negative, you ought to have twice as many positive things to say. I struggle with that. I don't know about you. Because I see things and, and I probably share too much. You know, I know my kids probably tremble when I start talking about kids. And what's he going to share about us this time? <laughs> I'll be happy to share something about your kids if you want me to. But I need you to sign a waiver before I do that. <laughs> and also allow me to put it on the podcast. But you understand... We spend more time talking about the negative things than we do the positive. And that's human nature. We need to to talk about the strengths, yes, but I believe we need to have an eye to what the weaknesses are. One of the reasons I have an eye to the weaknesses of my children is because they come from me. And I know well what my weaknesses are. And I see that they have gained some... I have given them, I've granted to them some of my weaknesses. We need to be in tune to that, parents. Job was in tune to that because Job said, I'm sacrificing, I've called this worship service because it may be that my sons have sinned. Did you notice that? Most of the people today say, my kids never do anything wrong. You know, when I was coming up, here we go, you know, the the good old days. I don't believe the good old days are past. I believe the good old days are now. Okay, that's how I believe. Because they are what we make them. But when I was growing up, you know, my dad said, son, if you get a spanking at school, I'm going to give you one when you get home. I don't care the circumstances. You're going to get one. And, you know, I got one spanking at school. And it was the day before graduation. And I'm not going to go into all that. I'm still ashamed of it. But, but my dad said, you know, it's sort of like the business mantra, the customer's always right. You know, He's like, I don't care if the teacher's wrong. You're getting a spanking because you violated something and you got a spanking. I never got a spanking except for that day before graduation, which I deserved that one. And nowadays, parents are suing teachers if they even speak to them in the wrong way. You see? How can we come that far? I'm telling you, that, that type of mentality is not the mentality of the servant of God, Job. Because Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, we've run out of time. I've got one minute and I haven't gotten into the focus of Job based on what he believed about God, about sin, about man, about himself, about his family, about his children, and on, on, based on what he believed. I haven't had time to get into his actions. We've touched on a little bit of his actions prior to the great loss that he suffered. But we want to see Job's actions prior to the loss, which we've touched on that. We've just begun to touch on that. And then let, we'll see his actions when he suffered great loss. And then we'll see how Job acted when he encountered the Almighty. So I guess you'd say this is to be continued. But as we close, you'll see that Job had several things against him, but there's one thing that he did not have against him. You'll see as we go along that definitely Satan was against him. Satan was out to kill him. Satan was out to destroy him, and the only thing keeping him alive was God. Sadly, you'll see that his wife turned against him. His own wife turned against him. And then you'll see that his closest friends turned against him. And sadly, Job actually thought that the Lord had turned against him. But the Lord had never turned against him. You see? So we want to see Job's understanding of God. We've seen that this morning. Then we want to look at some more things about the servant of God, Job. And hopefully through this we can learn some characteristics and things that we should have, that we should be striving for in our walk and in our life so that we can be better servants of the Lord. We'll stop there today and say to be continued till next time.